Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, Vortex Nation, what's going on? We are here in the studio, and I got to admit that this, I think we've done now a couple hundred episodes, Mark, and I have never felt nervous before a podcast until <laughs> right now. I feel so good because I, now I know it's not just me. Okay, because the brains across the table are, I, the people across the table are, are going to talk about some stuff that I wish I even knew how to like scratch the surface of, but you guys have really dug deep into these topics. You guys are from AB, and we have Chris Winkie across the table and Mitch Fitzpatrick. I got it <laughs> yep. out. Okay, yep. a bit of a tongue twister name. But uh, yeah, Applied Ballistics crew here uh, as part of helping us out with some of the initial training and run-throughs. Uh, by the time you're listening to this podcast, the Fury AB5000... Um, Oh, wait, hold on. Let me, Fury HD 5000 AB. I think that's actually the proper nomenclature. Uh, will have come out. There it is. Talk about tongue twisters. Yeah, a little bit. And so it has AB on board, which is a, you know, kind of a ballistic solution. And it's, it's more than just maybe your average ballistics calculator you might download or get on the internet or whatever. Uh, it, it really is this all-encompassing thing that uh, there's things like custom drag curves and there's you know, then giving you all this data to ideally, for all of you long-range enthusiasts out there, or get you as accurate as possible downrange. And so you guys are taking into account, I mean, just this immense amount of, of variables uh, that are happening upon your bullet as it goes through the air. Uh, it's pretty crazy stuff. But first off, we got to let them introduce themselves <laughs> because we've heard that once you guys get talking, you can kind of just go right off. So we got to at least let everybody who's listening <laughs> out there know who you are. Uh, we'll go uh, alphabetical by first name. So, Chris, we'll have you start. Yeah, no problem. So, basically, I kind of grew up, you know, hunting and shooting in, in South Australia. And then after a while, kind of split from the air rifle, the little 177, into the little 22 rimfire as a kid. And then gradually got into uh, long range uh, shooting in the mountains and, and hunting in the mountains there. And then ended up uh, finding my way into the military. It's usually kind of natural progression at that point. Ended up doing some work over in the Middle East for a little while and then streaming through to the sniper community after some time. Had a pretty extensive career in the sniper community for a good few years. Uh, finished a bunch of different courses, uh, some related to advanced sniping, others relating to just other generic things like combat signals or combat tracking, things like that. And then uh, decided I wasn't really uh, done with the Middle East and went back to contracting with the Australian government to Afghanistan, you know, because I love the place so much. This is also <laughs> part of the reason I was nervous for this podcast, because I'm sitting directly across from this guy. Because <laughs> he's so cool. Right, yeah. He's like very calm, cool, and collected, but I know what he's done in the past a little bit, just based on, anyway. So I did that, yeah, I did that for a few years, and um, that was really interesting. I got away from uh, the long range stuff for, for a little while, uh, a lot of more um, protection, close personal protection type stuff uh, for those few years and then went back to the sniping stream uh, for another year and a half odd and was fortunate enough that, well, my contract was coming towards an end with the, the military and um, I decided that, you know, maybe it's time to branch out and look at other options. Now, 
AB originally was, uh, they were advertising <laughs> for a mechanical engineer position. And um, I'm no mechanical engineer, by the way. <laughs> uh, never done a day in college, right? But uh, actually, I took that email and, well, Brian's email, and I sent, a, sent my CV out to Brian. And I said, hey, look, I'm no mechanical engineer, but here's my CV. Here's my qualifications. Um, here's some, you know, pretty solid reference letters uh, from some solid people. And maybe you've got a use for me. And we continued to have that discussion and it led to where I am now. Yeah. That's awesome. Super cool. All right. Well, th- appreciate you uh, sharing that. And then, Mitch, we'll have you introduce yourself, too. And then we were saying, and we almost had accidentally had a podcast before the podcast, because every person that I've heard thus far, when they're like, oh, wait till you get Mitch on the podcast. <laughs> that, guy, that guy knows a lot of stuff. Now, you just graduated from college, so we were. I was trying to figure out, I actually, in my head, was picturing somebody, you know, who looks like Einstein, and, you know, at least <laughs> in their 70s, with all oh, this geez. extensive knowledge they know. Oh, uh, somebody's been... Someone's really, really hyping me up. How did yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> just me in the background pulling yeah. strings, man, yeah. setting the bar high uh, so I can bring it. Yeah. <laughs> this is us just trying to make you nervous. Yeah, yeah. obviously, yeah. 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 yeah, so I just graduated from uh, Michigan Tech, which actually isn't terribly far from here up in the Upper Peninsula. Sure. Um, went, to a lot, went to school with a lot of people from Wisconsin. But uh, I started working uh, with uh, Applied Ballistics. I'm trying to remember what year it was now. But I was like in my sophomore year of high school. My uncles have a pretty good size farm in uh, Michigan. There, I'm from Central Michigan. Uh, AB is based out of Michigan, and I had access to lots of land. And you know, from a hunting perspective, we would see deer a long ways off, and we're like, "Oh, there's got to be a way we can shoot them further away than, <laughs> than you know having to like get within a couple hundred yards or whatever." So that's what kind of first set me on the course of long range. Is I was I wanted to get better for long range hunting and. Um, but as soon as I started looking into it a little bit, I came across um, some different types of shooting competitions that were taking place in Michigan, and the first one being uh, like Palma or F-Class competition. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so I drove up to Camp Grayling, a military base there. They actually, they don't hold matches there anymore, but they did at the time, and drove up there to like just kind of check it out. Uh, me and my dad went up there and started kind of talking to some guys, asking some questions, just seeing what they were doing. And uh, one of the guys is like, you know, you gotta you gotta go down to the other end of the line here and talk to that guy. Uh, his name's Brian. He's a ballistician. He like works for Burger Bullets. And I'm like, oh, Burger Bullets, that's cool. So I went down and uh, started asking him some questions and pretty, I mean, pretty advanced, in depth questions. I I, I would guess for a uh, for a 15 year old because I'd been researching it and trying to get into it for quite a while nice. at that point. And um, yeah, so he, he gave me some good pointers and. Uh, I took a lot of information away from that day, but um, the the way I really got into it was I, I didn't have the money to buy my own equipment, so I started uh, along with help, obviously, from my dad and uncles. We had a they've got a farm, so we've got mills and lathes and equipment like that, and uh, I started getting on CAD, and um, we we just started building our own, our own rifles. So started doing all of our own gunsmithing work. I drew up and made an action and I was buying, you know, like flat top blank wood stocks and, uh, finishing them all out and doing all that. And they shot really well. I mean, we were, we were getting half MOA results with some, what we thought were pretty cheap parts, but parts we could buy. And, uh, I started shooting F-class competitions and was doing really well as a junior. Obviously I was in high school at the time. And, uh, I started, ended up, uh, the Michigan F-class team guys had me come on uh, the team with them and start shooting. And Brian was the coach of that team. So that's where I got to work with Brian a little bit more. And, you know, one thing led to another and 
Brian kind of recognized that I was very passionate and interested in long range shooting and had already kind of taken it upon myself to figure out almost everything I needed to, to be pretty effective at it. I had, you know, I had bought his book, actually my uncle had bought his book and I was reading it. And before I even really made the connection that it was his book and, um, yeah, one thing led to another, and he kind of offered me a, a position. I shouldn't say a position. Offered to let me kind of intern with Applied Ballistics, and, you know, here we are. <laughs> it's like yeah. seven years later. I think I was 15 when first met and started shooting, 16 when I really started traveling with the, the F-Class teams. And, yeah, everything just snowballed from there. We've been doing F-Class and then ELR and all that good stuff. Well, you're into F-Class and ELR, so if you're like any of the other F-Class and ELR guys I know, then you are Pretty smart. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I guess I didn't go into that. My uh, So I got a degree in mechanical engineering with a minor in aerospace for Michigan Tech. And that was, so obviously I was already working for AB, kind of was already planning on going down that route, working with Brian. And Brian was, you know, AB's actually changed a lot since I've been there. Uh, we were joking about it. I think there's only, besides Brian, there's only one other person that still works there from when I started. Hmm. Um, so even though I just started full time, I've kind of been there before been everyone else. The block. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So uh, that kind of shaped that. I'm like, okay, this is what I want to go into. Kind of want to keep working with applied ballistics. So I went into mechanical because tech doesn't have a uh, a dedicated aerospace program. So I got the aerospace minor on the mechanical engineering degree and. Wow. That's, so that's my background, kind of my introduction, how I got into shooting and how I got to be sitting at the table here today. Yeah. <laughs> right on. So you guys basically are, your like obsession, for lack of a better term, is just trying to figure out what is happening to a bullet in flight. Yep. Is that pretty much accurate? Yeah, you could, you could summarize it like that for <laughs> sure, Jimmy. Yeah. So, yeah, so ex- external ballistics, yeah. that okay. would be the kind of the proper term for it. So is there such a thing as internal ballistics? Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah that's uh, and we kind of dabble in that a little bit. We haven't done too much, but that's more like, you know, load development and how does, you know, the burn rate of powders affect things. Okay. Most, the vast majority of what we do is when the bullet leaves the muzzle, Yeah. What, how do we predict what's going to happen? Okay. So a lot of people have probably by now, and hopefully if you listen to some of our podcasts, we talk about this stuff, right? A lot of people have gone in, you know, and, and you get the uh, fields to fill in on a ballistics calculator somewhere, yep. and you fill in, you know, if you're really into it, you got some kind of a chronograph or, you know, Doppler setup or whatever, yep. and you got your muzzle velocity and, um, you know, the grain weight of your bullet, you know, a few other factors, and you plug it in and stuff just gets spat out, right? Yep. It's all magic. Uh, seemingly <laughs> to people like us. And uh, in a lot of the podcasts we've talked about in the past, you know, I mean, we just literally have just said, you know, I mean, you don't necessarily have to be like a rocket scientist, which essentially these guys almost are, or maybe just are straight up, <laughs> um, to figure out this stuff because a lot of the work has been done for you. But but this is the chance where we get to peel back the onion and we get to, to ask you guys about what is going on under the hood. And then also another big thing we want to talk about is is some people might be familiar with You've got G1 and G7 ballistic profiles, yep. whereas you guys have taken it yet to the next step, or maybe two steps beyond, uh, to these custom drag profiles and even personal profiles for people who are shooting you know, one specific type of bullet, even off of one specific lot of ammunition, yep. and you know, through their rifling at, and with their with their setup, their barrel length. I was going to say, I mean, we have all these variables that you know right. affect the bullet, how it's you know, what happens to it after it leaves the barrel. And, and like, I was going to bring up that exact same thing. So I'd never even thought about how the rifling 
the individual riflings from mm-hmm. different barrels will affect a bullet yeah. differently. Yep. Yeah. So talk to us maybe first, and we'll kind of like graduate ourselves into the real complicated stuff mm-hmm. perhaps. But talk to us first, like what is happening under the hood as people are inputting data like muzzle velocity and the grain weight and... You know, then you talk about different different shapes of bullets. You know, you got boat tails, and yep. you got you know these flat bottom ones that look kind of like I just always call it the bullet bomb from Mario Bros. You know, but like yeah, stuff like that. What's happening under the hood? There's so much happening under the hood. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy. Okay. So yeah, I thought that was like a simple um, start, but it's probably just I just <laughs> no, kicked the hornet's nest. So I can speak to uh, more so the solver itself, and um, I mean, there's a few different ways you can uh, go about calculating ballistic solutions, but the way our solver works is uh, a numeric um, style solver where it will run a point mass solving. Uh, solution and what it's doing is it's basically time stepping the position of the bullet from the time it exits the muzzle to the time it reaches the target downrange and so what it's doing is it's uh it's separating or incrementing the bullet's trajectory into very very small increments all the way down downrange and so as it time steps it's basically asking the question where is the bullet? What is it doing now? And it runs the equations of motion and it calculates the position of the bullet and then it does it again for the next time step. And it So if you had like 10 million cameras between your muzzle and the target, it's almost taking these individual snapshots along yeah, essentially, the course. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. And so what it's doing is it's, it's solving those equations of motion for each time step as that bullet flies downrange. Now... As, as that bullet, you know, gets uh, to the target end, it's able to say, okay, this is the position of the bullet and this is what it's doing and here's your firing solution. But there's so much more that, uh, you know, needs to be input by the user on the user's end to get a good, accurate, solid firing solution. And I always kind of say to uh, shooters, when it comes to ballistic calculation, it should just come down to a good, solid wind call. The shooter should just have to make a good solid wind call. Elevation, everything else, taking into account second order effects for, you know, spin drift, um, aerodynamic jump, and vertical and horizontal Coriolis. That that is all completely um, talk about that stuff. deterministic, <laughs> right? And uh, we should be able to calculate it out, and we can calculate it out as long as we give the uh, the ballistic solver the correct inputs. And so the way I kind of tie that back in is uh, with the ballistic solver, it's kind of like a calculator on steroids, right? But ultimately, if you were to punch a, uh, you know, a problem into a calculator, you know, just um, 10, 10 times 10 and it busts out, you know, 90 or something, right? You've got a kind of a general idea of what that, uh, that calculator should spit out in terms of an answer so at that point you're like well this answer isn't quite right what's going on here so the first thing you go back is verify the inputs for your problem Mm. and usually you find okay i punched in the wrong number i went you know nine times ten or whatever and that's how i i ended up uh, where i was my point in saying that is a ballistic calculator or a ballistic solver can be treated like a calculator in the sense that it's calculating your firing solution. All you need to do is give it the good solid inputs that it needs to give you the most accurate output. And that kind of ties back to Geiger, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you are fudging certain elements of your ballistic profile, like your muzzle velocity or your launch velocity, obviously your uh, remaining velocity downrange and the subsequent drop that the bullet's going to experience is going to be a variable that, you know, you're going to have to... Um, you know, work to correct mm-hmm. as opposed to getting a good solid muzzle velocity from a chronograph, right? 
Now, ultimately, what the uh, the solver cares about is a few different things. It likes to know what the air density is because it needs to know how thick the air is that the bullet's flying through. It also needs to know what the uh, the local speed of sound is, and that goes into in the background. What it's doing is um, it's looking at the bullet's coefficient of drag relative to Mach number. Okay. And the reason it's uh, working on Mach number is because obviously uh, the speed of sound changes relative to the local atmospheric conditions, right? Temperature That's being... That's uh, not yeah. obvious, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. how, how is that, by the way? So we were, we were discussing this because Katie came in uh, from Kestrel, yep. and she had mentioned that as well. That was something that we discussed, and then it, it hit me. I was thinking to myself... Well, wait a minute. How does the so the Mach number, which is the speed of sound, the sound barrier, which is in and of itself, the sound barrier is, is baffling. So, anyway, well, I'm sure we'll get into <laughs> it. But it changes. So, like, if it was uh, drier air at higher elevation, it it's, might. Be, well, it's mostly tied to temperature. Yeah. Oh, it's mostly so it's, tied to temperature. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. So our Mach here in Wisconsin could be different in December than it is today. Oh, yeah. would well, be, the local would speed of sound, the muck, muck number is always going to be yeah. um, the same, like relative, because muck one is the speed of sound, right? Okay. So to standardize that, let's say that uh, at mean sea level, your um, muck number, your speed of sound, muck one, or the speed of sound would be somewhere around 11, 17 feet per second, right? Now that velocity, and I'm talking, that's the velocity of the bullet downrange. Okay. So... If you were firing that bullet through uh, less dense or more dense air, the velocity of that bullet is going to be um, somewhat different relative to the density of the air, and subsequently that'll affect the speed of sound. Oh, okay. But the reason we use Mach numbers because the coefficients of drag and the the shape of the drag curve is all tied to the relationship to the speed of sound. So it's all based on Mach number. That's That's why we can't just skip Mach and just use the you know, the velocity in feet per second or something like that. We okay, need- so if, if Mach is a higher velocity, then it will change everything even before it gets close to the Mach number, right? It's Yeah, it's we're just using... So you need to know the Mach number to be able to accurately say what the, the drag is at that step in the... Um, the time oh, steps that he was talking okay. about for the solution. So it doesn't necessarily matter what the actual velocity Mach 1 is because it's it's all... yeah. So relative yeah, to yeah. one, yeah. yeah. So you've got a. Okay. It, this is can be hard for people to visualize without having like a, a drawing or a diagram. But the the drag curve, what we refer to as a drag curve, uh, drag yeah. curve, when we start talking about uh, BCs and CDMs and PDMs, the drag curve is the coefficient of drag. It's like a plot, right? So it's like a graph, and you've got a line on the graph, and it's um, coefficient of drag and Mach number. Okay. So your when your bullet has a coefficient of drag at a specific Mach number, and that that table of values essentially is in the solver. It's either in the form of a BC, and we can get into kind of what that means, is when we're representing a you know a table of values with a singular BC number, um, or as a drag curve, which is a a unique curve. Um, yeah. Okay. Of a, a unique table of values essentially, and that curve is, like I said, it's it's coefficient of drag to Mach number. So you when you shoot, maybe you're at Mach 2.5. So that first time step in the solver is going to reference that table. Okay, okay, it's at Mach 2.5, regardless of what the actual speed is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah And okay. it'll say 
at Mach 2.5, the drag coefficient is this. Plugs that into the equations. You know, it's got your caliber, so your surface area. It just it solves the you know your aerodynamic drag equations mm-hmm. and um, can calculate more or less how much force is being put on the bullet to slow it down. Yeah, and it just keeps doing that in very fine increments all the way out. How does Mach change with the temperature? How does that even happen? It, it's just a it's just a physical property of the gas, right? Is it just so because air is a gas the particles are further separated when it's hotter and they're closer and more densely? Yeah, but without thinking of it, I don't want to answer the wrong way. But yeah, sure. it's, yeah, it, yeah, it really that. is. It's just the it's just how the particles of the air interact with each other mm-hmm. at a different temperature. How quickly the um, more or less a shock wave, a sound wave, can travel through. Okay. Yeah. Now everybody always talks about when they talk about mock, they talk about sound, and yeah. it, are they talking about sound just because sound is is the I guess final product of what you get when particles are bumping into one another? I mean, yeah. So is, it all, <laughs> is sound actually more like are they trying to say sound because you can actually hear it and that's how you perceive it, but it's actually like pr- like pressure or energy? Exactly. So okay. exactly what you just said. Sound is how we perceive that shock wave through air, right? Mm-hmm. But in relation to a bullet, what we care about is the shock waves and the drag that that generates. So, I mean, what happens is the the bullet's moving faster than the air can move out of the way of the bullet, and that generates shock waves on the, the profile of the bullet, a mm-hmm. couple of them uh, at various points. And the bullet is obviously moving through those shock waves faster than the shock waves propagate. Mm-hmm. So that's why you get like a, a cone of of a shockwave coming off a bullet. So as the bullet passes you, you don't hear it until the shockwave gets to you. Yes. Um, kind of okay. like that snap crack, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah exactly. Yeah. I was yeah. even reading, I remember it, and I found it interesting because they were talking about like how, you know, jets fly through the air and when they, you know, when they break the sound barrier and all that stuff and, and the way that people were, especially when we first got into flying and breaking the sound barrier and stuff, they talked about the shape of jets, you know, being yep. real pointed yep. and, and with those, tight cone noses and real long and streamlined. And then they went into how, like, they started bringing back uh, things from space, like capsules or whatever Mm -hmm. from space, and they realized that they actually couldn't make them pointed because the shockwave or whatever that was going around the pointed nose uh, capsules when they were entering back into the atmosphere was heating up the capsule so much that it would just, like, deteriorate. And they actually (laughs) had to make it, like, flat-nosed, so that way all of the energy went into heating up the air around the capsule and not the actual capsule mm. itself. And I was thinking that was interesting because of like the shape of bullets and how fast bullets are going. They ha- that has well, to affect the bullet as well, I'd imagine. Well, right? so when you're bringing somebody back from outer space or something back from outer space, you your objective is to slow it down. Sure. So okay. you want okay, yeah. a lot of drag to slow it down and expend that energy into the atmosphere so that they don't you know, run into the earth so That's fast that you point. can't recover it. We we don't want bullets to slow yeah. down, so we just we We're, keep yeah. trying to make them pointier and pointier yeah. until they oh, okay. they slip That's through the air point. easier and easier. Trying All to right. make them more efficient at managing. Exactly. Drag. Yeah. So I guess to bring that full circle, because um, I don't want to really leave listeners in the lurch on like one portion <laughs> yeah, of what yeah. I've said about the ballistic solver. It cares about a few other things as well, being the uh, the target inputs. You know, such as the range to the target itself. That's obviously an accurate range is going to obviously allow us to determine what the resulting drop is from the muzzle to the target and then also um the uh the solver itself cares about uh gun profile inputs or the or the bullet inputs in particular and Mm -hmm. that's uh a portion of uh why 
you know, we're able to generate such um, or predict such accurate uh, trajectories, you know, using the line of AB software in whatever device uh, is in the software is integrated into is because the AB laboratory does all of that work in the background for the end user, establishing what the uh, the G1 and G7 BCs are, establishing what the custom drag model is, and developing and innovating the uh, the best ways to predict trajectory prediction downrange mm-hmm. and extended mm-hmm. long ranges. Um, the last one being, you know, we talked about environment as well. And within that, you know, different inputs uh, provide different features, uh, such as, you know, if you were to just run latitude in your ballistic solver, that would be accounting for horizontal Coriolis. Whereas if you were to run latitude and direction of fire, that would then give you your vertical Coriolis component as well. So there's things like that that just allow the solver or inputs like that that just allow the solver to account for those second order effects. But in general, that's basically what we're trying to achieve. We're trying mm-hmm. to give the solver really good bullet properties so that the uh, the solver knows the shape uh, of the bullet itself and how it performs in various in the relative air density um, and how much drag that bullet's going to experience at whatever velocity it's doing relative to the speed of sound and then we also want to know you know what the where the target is and what the wind is doing downrange and um, what the environment is doing or what the air density is mm-hmm. you know? and that basically uh, brings everything together holistically to give us the firing solution that should yeah. enable you to hit your target. Questions like this might bring eye rolls to you guys just because I'm sure you get asked these all the time. But you bring up phrases like Coriolis, which anybody who's watched like a sniper movie, you know, they think like, oh, yeah, Coriolis, man. If I know that vocabulary there, like I'm going to impress all my friends. I don't actually even know what it is. But, you know, like Coriolis or, you know, you talk about aerodynamic jump and some of these other factors that you guys are considering in the equation that is happening under the hood that, you know, it's sort of figuring out for you. Like, wh- what are these things? So that's some of what, these uh, interesting phenomena that happened to our bullet. Just even yeah. go through some of those. So that's what uh, Chris was referring to as second-order effects. Yeah, so okay, yeah. your primary, you know, what most people th- think about calculating a trajectory, you've got a bullet and it's moving through, you know, your three dimensions of space. So you got your, like, three degrees of freedom. It's going downrange. It's got some left-to-right component, and obviously it's got uh, lift and drop, mainly drop. So, like, for instance, spin drift. So your bullet's spinning about its axis. The process of that taking place actually causes the bullet to veer off of its original path slightly, so that's spin drift. Because there's, like, friction between the surface of the bullet and the air, Um, and it's almost like grabbing... No, yeah, it's, no, spin it's drift occurs because we're uh, essentially creating rigidity around the bullet's spinning mass. Yes. And when you force the bullet to trace with a trajectory, it reacts by pointing its nose into a out-of-plane angle called the yaw of repose. So, so it's spinning, and it's, it's also trying to go like this while it's spinning. Oh, and Okay. You've got gravity pulling it down away yeah. from its, uh, you know, its uh, yeah. spin axis, and so yeah. it reacts by pointing its nose slightly. Yeah, I suppose um, you could probably, I guess I've never tried this, but you could probably almost uh, get a feel for that if you like try to like spin a bike wheel or something really fast, and then as you like try to move it, it yeah. resists your movement. That's kind of what's going on. I was going to ask if it was like that, but I didn't want to sound stupid. Yeah, so you have something, stupid enough. you have to <laughs> keep in mind, like a bullet's like suspended in midair, right, while sure. it's flying. So anything like that, it has an effect. And so you've got your equal and opposite reactions, and it, goes <laughs> that okay. direction so can, I, can um, I ask if this is and i'm asking if this is an accurate analogy but if you have like a left-handed quarterback or a right-handed quarterback and they throw a pass like 
the ball will either curve to the left or the right. Is is that you think? Uh, I'm not sure. That's not. Yeah, <laughs> that's not a uh, not necessarily spin driven. probably Magnus drift. Yeah, right? yeah. with subsonic stuff like that, you get Magnus. Yeah. Probably the coolest. I'm thing a big I've Magnus seen. Drift guy, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Probably the coolest thing I've seen on that is a YouTube video where some dude's just uh, spinning a basketball off a bridge, and you yeah. can fully watch it curve as it flies down a valley. Yep. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. As opposed to spin. That's Magnus Drift. Yeah. So totally like, different. Yeah. Not even remotely close. No. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> with spin drift, yeah. it's it's obviously related to how fast a bullet's spinning. It's Caliber, mass, all sure. that good stuff, because okay. that's uh, you know kind of establishing the the physics for what's going on. So with the right hand twist, it's going to veer to the right, and so that's something we have to account for in the solver. The only we took on, uh, touched on is aerodynamic jump, and that that actually occurs right at the muzzle. So as the bullet's coming out of the muzzle, if you have crosswind, the bullet coming into the wind, um, it uh, disturbs the bullet's yeah, spin axis. It, it's the again, it's yeah. a spin related. Um, so basically, like, I'll break it. I'll break it down to the shooter <laughs> level for you, yeah. Mitch, because I know, like, I know you're I'm trying, trying to, to do this like engineering <laughs> thing, yeah, and oh I'm gosh, uh, we've broken know, try and speak uh, to no. <laughs> try and speak to the masses in uh, shooter speak, right? So um, when the bullet exits the muzzle, it's uh, kind of conducting some amount of pitching and yawing, right? Like okay. up, down, left, right. And um, it exits the muzzle and, you know, you have this crosswind, you know, it might be like 10 miles per hour or whatever it is, usually results in 9 or 10 miles per hour, usually results in around uh, 0.1 MRAD of AJ, right? So the bullet exits the muzzle and it's, you know, trying to uh, damp out the oscillations from being spun and launched out of the muzzle and fly point forward. But this wind just is cutting across your muzzle and as that bullet exits the muzzle, it disturbs the bullet's spin axis slightly. So as a result, like depending on whether the wind is coming from the left through to the right or the right through to the left will determine whether you have a vertical aerodynamic jump component high or low. So mm-hmm. for a wind coming from the left, it would push the bullet low and to the right. Now, the right is a function of the wind deflection, not aerodynamic jump. Aerodynamic jump is just the vertical component, right? Okay. Now for a wind from the right through to the left, that would push it, um, you know, left and high. So... That's just a very, very small, subtle com- component, but it's still something that we need to take into account nonetheless. Does that change based on twist, like left hand or right it hand? It does, so it okay. would be um, directions reversed are for a left assuming, twist versus a right twist. Okay, we're assuming right hand twist there. Okay, yeah. got it. I, yeah. kinda, I can kind of picture that. Yeah. You guys yeah. can explain it, but I can kind of picture it so, after you're saying that. And the, the, the one thing I was going to say, just to, one thing people need to keep in mind with aerodynamic jump is that it only occurs at the muzzle. Yeah. So if okay. you're shooting from like inside a building or something where there is no... Uh, you're, there's no wind at the muzzle of your gun. Like the the projectile is going to fly for ten yards before it reaches any wind. Then that kind of re- it, it eliminates the aerodynamic jump because you. Oh really? It's, oh okay. Yeah, as that bullet damps out, you know, uh, after the first um, twenty odd yards, at yeah. that point there's going to be some subtle disturbance to the bullet's spin axis. But at that point, it's damped out those uh, pitch in your oscillations that the disturbance is uh, quite minimal compared to what it would be at the muzzle. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the window you're shooting out of in this theoretical situation wouldn't become like a muzzle. No. The, the muzzle is the muzzle, yeah. and it's going to... Well, like you said, it yeah. would still have an effect, but, you know, 
to start, you're only talking one or two clicks, yeah. and yeah. then once it's at that point, it's sub it's one click, and it's nothing we can sure. account for anyway. So okay. now that okay. you know that vertical uh, deflection, whether it's high or low, is occurring because the pitch angle of the bullet itself is asymmetric, being it's uh, pitching at a slightly increased or decreased angle high or low relative mm. to the, the direction that it's been disturbed. Mm. And so it's that variation in pitch angle high and low depending on the direction of the wind that causes the, uh, the, the deflection that we see downrange. Okay. I mean, when you start talking about second order effects, it really uh, comes down to the size of the target that you're shooting and how far you're shooting as yep. well for it to really matter. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, okay. so... The other one that I figured we could talk about too was the Coriolis, yep. right? Yep. And is that all right? This is where just literally only Hollywood has taught me anything about <laughs> Coriolis. It's where the bullet is flying, and the Earth is still spinning underneath it. Is yeah. that right? That's pretty much it. Hollywood, yeah. you did good. You did okay. You did okay. But I, I still, I mean, I kind of try to think about that. Like, I guess you were talking about if you know where you're pointed. You know, the Earth isn't always necessarily compared to where you're pointing going to be spinning in a perfect horizontal or perfectly vertical yep. fashion to you. So it may be spinning at a slight angle or Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh it's it's really just that. So when you shoot the bullets in midair, you're moving, the ground's moving, so that your target really isn't where it was when you shot. And so that's what you have to account speaking, for. Okay. Technically speaking. But it's, like but like when you shoot and you're moving at the Earth's spinning velocity when the bullet leaves the barrel, it would have also been moving yep. at the Earth's spinning velocity too. So it's like when you, it's the reason why when you're in your car and you like are going 65 miles an hour and you throw a water bottle up, it doesn't like fly to the exactly. back of the car, you yep. know? So like, but it, it must obviously slow down, this start slowing down the second it leaves the barrel. Yeah, right? so it's so no then, longer locked in with okay. the ground spinning, Got right? Got it. So you, it, it's, it's really all comes down to time of flight, right? So like all of these, all of these effects get uh, magnified the longer the bullets sure. in the air. So, um, you know, inside a thousand yards, guys hunting say they're going to shoot an elk at 900 yards or whatever they're going to do. They're shooting at a, a big enough target, and you're, you're still going to want to take into account, right? You're probably going to have a click of Coriolis. Um, so maybe that was that hunting example is a bad example. But the average long range shooter is probably shooting at targets big enough and close enough that. If they ignored Coriolis, they're probably not going to see much of a difference in their um, their capability to hit the yeah. targets that they're shooting. You got to be a good enough shooter to yeah. distinguish. Like, was I one click off because of Coriolis or me? Yeah. You yeah. Know? But if yeah. you're trying to hit a prairie dog at 950 yards or 1300 yards, then you better be factoring in Coriolis because if you're a click off, then you're going to miss the prairie dog. Right. That's a couple prairie dogs. So that's where, like, what Chris was saying. <laughs> yeah. That's where, like, Chris was saying, it really comes down to your target size and how far away it is because. It's it's all relative. Sure, what we're trying to hit, and uh, we actually have a really great tool called Wes. So we have we have a software that you download onto your desktop. It's called uh, Applied Ballistics Analytics, and it has a tool built into it called Wes, and it's called Weapon Employment Zone. And really, what it does is it calculates your prob your hit probability hmm. based on all of these inputs. Um, that we've touched on, but it's really looking at your error of these inputs, right? Okay. So it's, I can uh, read wind to within plus or minus three miles an hour. So you tell it that. You're like, okay, I can determine the temperature to within plus or minus three degrees. And my rifle shoots one MOA. So you plug in all those type of uh, variables. Oh, yeah. And 
it'll it'll actually run a simulation of like a thousand shots and it'll like overlay them over the size of the target and it's like okay so on your first round impact your you know your first shot you have a three percent chance of hitting that target right <laughs> uh and it's it's pretty amazing um when well, you start playing with that just how difficult some shots are and it and it really does match reality because um, you know, a lot of people say they hit stuff that <laughs> when it comes to on game day, they don't, <laughs> they yeah, don't hit them. It's got to be a bit but, humbling to, Oh, it know, really is. Because yeah. I, I mean, if I think to myself, like, what temperature do I think it's in, it is in here? I have no idea. Yeah. Which, so, 70? Like, like I said, you yeah, right. <laughs> Katie in here with Kestrel. So we've got tools to measure those sure. things, right? And those, sure. if you're going to use that to get your, your atmospheric data, well, Kestrel has actual specifications for well, the that, accuracy yeah, of nice. those those sensors right so you can put that right into the the wes analysis and um my point with that is and the reason why i brought it up when we're talking about aerodynamic jump and these second order effects that go into figuring out these long range shots you can actually put in the size of your target and how far away it is and run your simulation and you say okay if i totally ignore coriolis i still have a 65 percent chance of hitting this target and if right. i factor it in maybe i've got a 75 percent chance right yeah so you you can start weighing whether or not these things are important but I, it's kind of a moot point because if you're if you get wes and you start playing with that you're probably at a an advanced enough point where you're factoring <laughs> in on all your shots anyway yeah. so it's it's one of those things that we kind of talk about the importance of it but as if like if someone's going to start shooting long range and they're going to get into it and they're going to buy you know some good scopes from you guys and you know all the the tools to make it happen you might as well learn how to do it right and just start factoring that stuff in sure. right from the beginning because even if even if when you begin it makes a half a click difference well now as you start to like push your limits you're just going to be that much more capable and be able to shoot further mm-hmm. so it's it's one of those things you don't really want to take and learn half measures like you might as well learn to do it right right off the bat yeah I think the the thing is too with with weapon employment zone analysis is it allows you to manage your expectations as well. Yeah. You know, because if I was to ask you like, okay, we're going to get down behind this weapon system and everything's dialed in and everything, it's just going to come down to your ability to make a solid wind call and we're going to shoot this target at a mile, um, first round, and uh, you've got solid uh, a solid indication or familiarity with what that weapon system is going to do for the cold bore uh, point of impact shift from short range zero and also the cold bore muzzle velocity um, for the first round or two and how that's going to warm up. Even then, I'm like, well, you know, you've got all of these uh, factors that you're accounting for. What do you think your percentage or your probability of hit is on that target in in a, some term, like in some amount of percentage? You're like, well, I don't know. Like, that's, uh, that's <laughs> right. pretty hard, right? So what weapon employment zone analysis allows you to do is assign a hit percentage to that based on that 1,000 round um, first first shot simulation and that does allow you to manage your expectations in terms of okay I might have you know a 20% hit probability on uh, this target with my uncertainty parameters and my skills and abilities to hit that target Mm -hmm. now um, you know that 20% may or may not be good enough for you to you know warrant taking that shot but it also allows you to determine, you know, this is what I need to work on as a shooter as well. Yeah. Or, wow, it's really just my wind calls that are killing me um, or, you know, reducing my ability to effectively engage that target, in which case I can go away and work on my wind calls by, you know, even just uh, bringing the Kestrel with me when I walk the dog and just uh, periodically checking the wind. Yeah. But, um, 
you know, that's a, a great little tool to have. Uh, you just need to manage that honesty when it comes to inputting the uncertainty parameters as well. Yeah. You know, like if you get down on the range and you're only shooting sub two MOA and uh, to punch in sub two MOA inherent precision on the weapon employment zone analysis kind of hurts your uh, your ego a little <laughs> bit. Like you're never going to have a realistic uh, hit yeah. probability calculation. Right? I'm sure there's also I'm sure there's also an element too of like it might say that you have a ninety percent probability at four hundred yards, but you're like okay, but I'm also upside down on a rock and my neck oh, is yeah. kinked. You know, there's so, some of that yeah, too. Yeah, and I mean, the, have to the easiest way to account for that once you become familiar with the program is is actually just to um, manipulate your inherent precision because that's not the inherent precision of just the weapon system itself. The weapon might group half an MOA or, mm-hmm. you know, even better. But if you're only capable of grouping one MOA, exactly. the, your precision capability is one MOA. If you're shooting alternate positions, maybe you can only get two MOA out of it, in which case yep. you can just manipulate that input to uh, calc your hit probability for that inherent precision. Mm-hmm. And and can you separate those things out? Like let's say Jim, let's just say that Jim's a way better shooter than I am, right? And he <laughs> can take that weapon not. system and he's True. got half MOA, right? Yeah. Just bang, bang, bang. Yeah. And then I get behind it and I'm like, oh no, it's it's one MOA for me. You, you can separate yeah, those absolutely. things out. Yeah, you yep. can run those. Cool. So basically you could sit there and... Uh, you know, from an alternate position or just uh, from prone, whatever the scenario is where that uh, precision or your grouping capability is changing um, within your your own individual abilities, you can then also analyze, well, if I was able to shoot uh, with from a more stable alternate position, it would reduce my grouping capacity down to, you know, half an MOA or one MOA or whatever, in which case that would increase my hit probability to this. So... Um, and then, you know, as you're saying, uh, Mark, you can compare the uh, the hit probability shooter to shooter as well based yep. on your abilities. So, nice. Yeah. I don't know, man. Sounds yes. like it could be kind of demoralizing. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with be. the ignorance. Yeah. Uh, ignorance, ignorance is bliss. That's right. Yes. That's right. Yep. You guys have so many tools available. And one of the one of the really cool ones, and actually we haven't really even fully dived into this one yet, but like is the custom drag curves. Yep. And then also I think that'll probably lead into the PDMs, personal drag models. Yep. But like when you guys are making this custom drag curve, so you guys kind of took, you know, the there's the G1 and the G7 ballistic profiles, and that kind of assumes a general shape of a bullet. Yep. But obviously, when you talk about different grain weights of even within the same caliber, you've got different lengths with changed things. And then you talk about obviously calibers, which changes the, you know, the sectional density, or I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, the size and shape of, of bullets, you're actually taking into account each individual bullet and, yep. and determining how it will fly through the air. And so I'm curious about that. And then also how it is that then you've taken this custom drag model for 140 grain Hornady ELDX, uh, yep. ammunition, right? But somehow that's even yet still a little bit different when it shoots out of my Ruger American Predator versus Mark's Weatherby whatever. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. So. so this is a conversation we've had a few times yeah. now on different uh, different platforms. And honestly, I think the, the best way to start is to kind of back all the way up to G1. Okay. So a G1 BC, kind of the you know the old school number that everyone always used to use. Um, the OG. The OG BC. The OG yeah, yeah, yeah. G1, that's right. <laughs> So the G1 is a, or any BC for that matter, is a 
it's a standard drag curve for a standard bullet. So there is a G1 standard bullet shape, and that is a, a very determined bullet shape. It's a very blunt nose with a flat base, and if you shoot that bullet and measure its drag curve, which is the um, the drag coefficient at each Mach number, and that's that uh, that's where a lot of people I think have trouble visualizing it is this drag curve. Mm-hmm. So I should get in the habit of carrying around an example of it. Just a big fold out. Just a, yeah, I can yeah. like <laughs> fold it up and hold it up. Yeah. So anyway, you you've got this drag curve, and it's a very specific shape for that mm-hmm. specific shape of bullet. Anytime you start to change the design of the bullet, where you change the uh, the Mipla diameter, which is like the flat open tip or like the flat tip on a, a plastic tip bullet, like the Hornady's, okay, or you cha- put like a boat tail on it or a flat base, you start changing that. The actual shape of the drag curve, which is the drag coefficient to mock um, graph that plot of values, that shape changes. So mm-hmm. when you try to use a G1BC, the reason why it was the one that always used to be used is because we had a lot of flat base bullets. They were relatively blunt because that's just how we could easily make them. You know, we're talking early 1900s. And it made sense to use that because the, the sure. G1 shape, the cur- the shape of the G1 curve really closely matched the shape that all these other bullets had um, mm-hmm. within people's ability to tell the difference when it's they were like calculating size trajectories. fits all. Yeah. Like uh, when and you because buy a glove at the store, like <laughs> it's made for people who have five fingers. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So then when um, we started to do more tra- trajectory calculations and we got bullets that started to have boat tails on them and they were getting longer and more pointed, we switched to the G7 because that was a better shape and there was less error. Because when you go back and you really look at people using G1s, you couldn't just use one G1 uh, BC to get a good solution. You had to run what they called was banded BCs, where your, your calculator would actually allow you to put in different BCs for different velocities. Hmm. And that's because that shape was enough different on the curve. You had to scale the G1 curve in different segments to kind of line up and force your trajectory to line up correctly in, in uh, velocity bands and that's a function yeah. of like when we're calculating ballistic coefficient right i would start this by saying ballistic coefficient is a measure of how well a bullet uh, penetrates the air or maintains velocity right um, for those listeners but when we talk about uh, calculating bcs it's a weight cross-sectional area and form factor and form factor is the big one that form factor is going to change um, or the amount of drag that that bullet experiences downrange is going to change relative to Mach number or velocity, right? And um, so we're using form factor, and I should say form factor is the um, amount of drag an individual bullet experiences compared to a standard. So you yeah. could have a G1 form factor and a G7 form factor. So to kind of, as an example, let's say that uh, one bullet had a form factor of 1.1, and that would be 10% less efficient than the standard, the drag of the standard, you know, G1 or G7, whatever form factor it was. Let's say we had another bullet that was 0.9. Well, that bullet would be 10% more efficient than the standard. Oh. So a lower number is actually better when it comes to form factor. So the, for the reason uh, Mitch is talking about where um, because we're going ahead and calculating a ballistic coefficient in parts with uh, the form factor, because that form factor changes as that bullet's velocity changes, you have a a large variation in form factor in, uh, sorry, you have a large variation in G1 BC, especially when you're shooting a modern long range bullet because it isn't comparable to that G1 standard. Hmm. Yeah, and and that's where it gets hard to visualize because what the BC is effectively doing is scaling that 
uh, drag coefficient to mock curve up and down to try to match the the actual drag of the bullet you're shooting. So the G1 is has that specific shape, but it's um, not a very good match to the modern long-range bullets. So we had to scale that a lot, and because we're scaling it a lot and the shape's not very good, that's why we had to do it in different segments to try to get each part to kind of line up as you okay. go from you know Mach 3 or Mach 2.5, wherever your muzzle velocity is, all the way down through subsonic velocities if you're shooting long ways. So then we go to the G7, which is a much closer fit. So the, the shape of the curve and kind of the, the drag values that that curve represents are much closer to what modern long-range bullets are. So when we started using G7s, we didn't need to run like a banded G7BC because the, the errors in that curve were a lot less. Okay. Um, but now we're getting bullets, um, you know, like a lot of the, the Hornady A-tips, the Berger... Uh, Elite hunters, the EOLs, like the, we're just getting such heavy, long bullets that we're a lot of them have error even from the G7, right? So the way we correct that is we go to a CDM, and what a custom drag model is is for that bullet instead of trying to make this standard curve that is the G7 curve for the G7 shaped bullet to scale it to fit this other bullet, we just measure that curve for that bullet. We kind of skip the middleman sure. and um, just generate a new curve, and so that curve, the shape of that curve matches exactly the the drag at each Mach number of that bullet. So that's what a, a custom drag model is. And we what we do is we we get bullets uh, from every manufacturer. We actually we go and buy them from you know whatever store people buy bullets from all the various ones because we want to buy the, the actual bullet store. The bullet store, yeah. well yeah <laughs> i was gonna name them but you know we get them from like midway midway usa and brownells sure. and um because we want to get actual examples of bullets that people are shooting right like we're not going to yeah. the manufacturers and be like oh you know send not us like the, oh here's the really yeah. perfect ones yeah be, right. well because you know we have this database that people use and people reference that database to get bc numbers and kind of compare right so we yeah. want to make sure we're not getting some sort of like pre-production run that's slightly different than yeah. um so we just go and buy all the bullets and then we test them and we actually measure that curve uh and the reason why um to kind of take a step back and explain why we didn't just do that in the first place is until we have the equipment that we have now like we started measuring um with um time of flight measurements and then now we've gone to radar but in the past when it wasn't easy to do those things getting that shape of that curve was very difficult. So once they had sure. it established for the G1 and the G7, we've got most of the work. Now we just need to apply a factor to that to kind of shift it to get okay. things to line up. So really, the advancements in the technology that we have available to us to make these measurements has made CDMs and now PDMs possible. So I was going to ask, like, people must have thought you guys were crazy when you basically started saying, like, well, we're just going to figure out the BC for everything, like, exactly. Yeah, and really, that's... People were like... That's probably I mean, the way that people could um, understand it the most, is instead of calling it a, a CDM, you could almost call it like a G Hornady 110 A-tip BC, yeah. because it is for that bullet, right? Like yeah. that G7 is really for a specific bullet design. So the custom drag model is its own shape. And when it's people are, thing. are using your CDM, the BC is 1.00. Correct. Yeah, exactly. the BC is it's not just... It's not scaling that curve yeah, at all. Yeah. So... That's that's what a CDM is, and a PDM is essentially the exact same thing, but we're measuring it for your specific rifle. Yeah. And I, I say rifle, but it's for your barrel, your suppressor, your lot of bullets, 
all of that because what we found, and we found a lot of this because we shoot a lot of ELR, right? So we're trying to shoot 2,000 yards, 2,500, two miles, and that's where all of this stuff gets exaggerated. Like, you have to have the drag spot on. You have to have your velocity number spot on. There's no, like, yeah, it's close enough. Exactly. <laughs> so um, that's where we've kind of learned a lot of this. But as we bring that down into, you know, closer ranges, it just helps everyone hit smaller targets, right? So with a PDM and what we the tools we have now with our mobile lab we go to these shooting events like uh competitions and um some expos and other other types of events and where we can set up on a range and we can have guys come through and we set up the radar and you shoot 10 shots and we measure the the velocities and the the drag of you know those shots to as far as we possibly can at those venues and we take that information we we've got all this computer code that we run it through um, all the raw radar information and it processes it and it spits out. We still do the G7 BC numbers that way because that's the one problem that I think a lot of people, I don't want to say a problem that they have, but one thing with CDMs and PDMs is that you can't compare bullets that way, right? Because they're sure. different things. You don't have a number where you can yeah, say this has a higher BC than this because they're, this is different, right? So we still spit out G7BCs. It gives you a, a starting point, and a lot of people still like to run G7BCs. So what, what we'll do is we'll get a printout that gets some, uh, their, all their velocity information and their BCs for what they just shot. But then we also generate a CDM, which is a PDM in that example, and we push that to our library with a special designator so they can go find their bullet with their uh, little PDM designator in parentheses that has their data. And getting back into the reason why we do that, so first of all, from lot to lot of a given bullet from whatever manufacturer, the BC can change, right? Because anytime they're setting up and they're taking down uh, the dies that make these bullets, it's just not the same every time. Some manufacturers are better than others, but there are variations. So hmm. if we get, we and we can't just keep our library up to date with every lot of bullets from every manufacturer Oof. like that's just not yeah, be feasible because we've already got like a thousand bullets in our library and we try to keep them updated periodically but we can't account for that so you have lot to lot variations of a specific bullet so you know for one bullet the our cdm when we test it the the g7 bc that goes with that bullet might be 0.285 but then somebody else gets another lot that it's 0.280 right so you've already got a difference there from lot to lot of bullet the next thing is um, different barrels because you know that bullet is forcing its way down that barrel it's kind of getting scratched up on the sides in particular when a, a barrel's got a high round count on it it's got fire cracking it's getting rough it's actually really roughing up that the side of that bullet and now your bullet's got a lower bc than it did when the barrel was new because it's so, just not as aerodynamically efficient when it's all roughed up. Well, yeah, it's like you're um, you're just adding drag, right? You've got like the surface finish isn't as smooth. All kinds of sur yeah. new surface areas. Yeah, exactly. In the yeah in the round. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. now you've got a barrel that's got two thousand rounds on it, and your your BC or you've got more drag than what it was when it was new. So especially when we go to uh, matches like this, guys can get this um, information right away, and then they can go and shoot a match with their most up-to-date drag information. Oh wow, yeah. So that's another thing. So you got lot-to-lot -lot variation. You've got barrel-to-barrel, -barrel, and that's you know that's just one barrel that's getting more worn. But from barrel to barrel, you just have differences. You could shoot sure. the same lot of bullets in each one. You shoot ten barrels. One, the nine out of the ten are almost identical, but your tenth one, it's like, well, that one's got. 
3% more drag or less drag for whatever reason. Hmm. And this is all stuff we're trying to like study and learn about, but it's <laughs> you're you're starting to look at things that are just almost unexplainable, right? Until until we have time to really break it down. So the best way we can manage it is to just try to measure people's drag for them through a PDM. And another thing too is uh launch dynamics. And that's um we actually had a, an, an example of that when we had some of your guys out at your range shooting. And uh, what that is is when the bullet comes out of the muzzle, it's got more limit cycle yaw, which is the bullet kind of comes out doing something like that, mm-hmm. um, more than it should, I guess I would say. And then as it starts to fly down range, it kind of dampens out and it starts to fly more straight. Okay. And so it's got more drag at the muzzle. And the, the problem with that is if, you, if you're not accounting for that, even if you have your muzzle velocity exactly correct and you're running what the BC for that bullet really would be downrange, you're still going to see an error because for the first you know 20 yards, it had more drag than it did once it hit the 20-yard mark. Hmm. So we were able to see that on the radar tracks for the one guy that was out at the range there, and we factored that into his PDM. And so now when he shoots that gun, it's got that factored in, and he doesn't have to worry about error from that. How is the wow. radar seen? Is is it what kind of radar? Is, what is it like? It's uh, so it's it's just like a scaled up lab radar essentially. Okay, it's uh, it's like a big giant rectangle thing. Yep. And what is it? Is it shooting lasers out? I don't no, it's uh, <laughs> it's Doppler this. waves. It's actual okay. uh, yeah, you know they're like radio waves, and they go and they bounce off the back of the bullet. Okay, and we're we're measuring like the difference when sure. it comes back. What? How do um, man? Now I'm getting into just the weeds. I'm sorry, but. <laughs> What are radio waves? Because I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, you got clearly it's not sonar because sonar no. is sound and it wouldn't move fast yeah. enough to keep up with the bullet, right? Yeah, no, they're just el- electromagnetic waves of okay. a specific frequency, and and yeah. they can actually kind of like almost give you an image of the bullet as it's traveling. Now so you can almost like what see it's it? the only thing that it's measuring is velocity. Okay. So what it's you know it's it's going at a specific frequency out. It's just a specific wavelength, I guess, mm-hmm. to the bullet. And then when it bounces off the back of the bullet and comes back, it's slightly different, and it's measuring that difference, and that difference tells it how fast that projectile is moving. Okay. okay. So it's it's taking those measurements at a specific frequency, and it's logging the data points mm-hmm. of essentially how the velocity is changing and as How it goes can you tell range. if a bullet is doing that kind of wavy uh, yaw well, and pitch so thing? Well, so in that the... example specifically, the way it uh, manifests itself is in increased drag because if it's flying like this, it's presenting more surface area to its forward momentum or its forward uh, trajectory Mm -hmm. and it just has more drag. So what we'll see on the radar track is the bullet comes out and it has more drag at the muzzle and then like the drag kind of drops quickly as it dampens out and then the drag just kind of slowly increases as it slows down is just what a normal track looks like. And you can detect how much drag you have by how much of like a... By how quickly it's slowing down. How much? Oh, okay. So oh, we should, got it. You know, got it. Uh, caveat that or explain that uh, by saying, you know, that initial launch dynamic is causing some amount of uh, velocity decay, and so that yeah. shooter is experiencing yeah. uh, that. Well, that bullet is slowing down faster than what sure. it otherwise should if right. it um, didn't have an initial launch dynamic. Yeah. yeah. Which so would in mean which instance? Yeah. 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 So in in which instance, uh, Mitch was kind of saying you could plug your uh, muzzle velocity in from a um, good accurate chrono reading and then go ahead and uh, engage a target at longer range and the firing solution may have some amount of error in it because you're suffering from that initial velocity decay at short range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Wow. 
So th- those are the types of things that we can uh, account for with the PDM that without, you know, without taking careful measurements, you just wouldn't know with your system. And that's, and the reason we've gotten to this point is, like I said, with shooting ELR, but as, as guys have, you know, been shooting the data that we generate and just over time we've noticed small errors where it's like, you know, stuff's just, even though we've done everything right, mm-hmm. right. Um, stuff just wasn't lining up and that's where we've, we've started to catch on to these little differences. It's like, Oh, the different lot of bullet has a different BC or has different drag. Yeah. And you know, this barrel's different than these barrels or, you know, this barrel manufacturer is different than these yeah. barrels. How do you know what lot, um, your bullets came from? I don't know. If it says right on the box. Oh, it does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so for like if you're buying loaded ammo, you could go by the lot of the ammo. We're we're okay. talking specifically the bullets themselves because they're made in lots, which is typically with, you know, the the bullet making dies are set up specifically and they run sure. tens of thousands of bullets, millions depending on the manufacturer. And and one kind of interesting thing I remember uh, Ruben was saying this when we were out there because I was asking him, you know, let's say you guys are out of the competition, somebody comes up to your guys' trailer, they get that that a PDM made yep. for them. I was curious at first because I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, let's say they're in Colorado at high elevation and it's really hot out and they get that PDM made for them. And then they head back to Timbuktu where it's a low elevation and not very hot out. Yep. The drag, the PDM is actually, that doesn't matter for it. Nope. Nope, it's really just the the shape of the bullet. It doesn't, they say the shape and the, you know, the... uh, the initial limit cycle yaw and the surface finish of the bullet all of that is what matters the the drag coefficient which is the the drag i'm mostly referring to on that uh, drag coefficient versus mock plot the drag coefficient is independent of the atmospherics at okay. the time right. so the mock yeah. changes and that's what would change so you it's not that it's not that i would go from this dramatic change in atmospherics and just have no changes in my dope, you would still have changes in your dope, but it's because of other things like the mock has changed. Or well, I think the I think the best way to explain it would be that when we're calculating drag coefficients, we're taking into account the atmospherics at the time okay. so that we're separating them. The atmospherics oh. are an input into this equation, and so is the coefficient of drag. Okay. And we know what the atmospherics are before we test, right? Like we can measure with a Kestrel or so some other weather out. station. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so we know what those are, but then once we shoot the bullet and we know the velocity decay, we can backtrack what the actual coefficient of drag is, and that's totally separate from the atmospheric. Okay. So you can take the, that coefficient of drag, which is that table of coefficient drag values, and take that anywhere in the world with any atmospheric conditions, and then you plug those into the equation with the coefficient of drag, and you've still got a really good solution. So you almost have like a constant, and then you're just exactly. adjusting it, your variables. Yeah, it, it yeah. should Listen be a constant. Yep. Jim, way to go. <laughs> nice. You guys have, have truly like, this is like mind-blowing stuff. I, I, one, one other one that I've been like super curious about as well is people talk about going transonic. Yep. Oh, that was, yes. And and so you have this this aspect of, you know, a lot of the, let's let's assume for now, but what, I'll, I want to also talk about subsonic ammunition and stuff like that. But anyway, let's assume we're talking about somebody who's shooting a, a round that will be traveling supersonic above Mach 1 yep. to start. And then there's this period of time, and it could be at, you know, a certain distance. You may find that, I know the guys experienced this out at the range where they were shooting at, you know, dead on at 1,000, right? Like boom, 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 super reliable, super predictable. You go out to... 
I think they even said like it was a thousand and fifty or something. And all of a sudden, no idea what was going on. It was it was all over the place. And it's because you know at that certain point, for whatever reason, with that setup, they started going transonic. So switching between because the bullet had slowed down enough, uh, supersonic to subsonic. So why does that cause such an imbalance or something? in flight of the bullet, that it just creates this momentary, because it almost seems like it stables out again once it goes subsonic, but you guys may have other things to say about that. What is it about that region that's so, so crazy? Really, we can uh, categorize this into like tr- talking transonic and subsonic effects. Transonic is going to start at about Mach 1.2, right? And okay. those uh, transonic subsonic effects that you're going to potentially experience would occur all the way up until maybe 0.8 Mach. So basically, there's this uh, period of time or this there's this um, Mach period that the uh, the bullet is um, you know essentially clearing the sound barrier and reaching that uh, Mach 1 and then continuing through the sound barrier to subsonic right but the variation that you could potentially see downrange through trans and subsonic is uh, for the most part relative to uh, bullet design now some bullets will transition the transonic flight regime a lot better than other bullet designs um, in part it, it, it uh, can be a function of the bullet design boat tail in particular and um, when we talk about uh, bullets being inconsistent at extended long range and I say extended long range because it's a good way to term the the shooting beyond the supersonic into the trans and subsonic flight regime right and um, basically uh, when we are talking about clearing the trans and subsonic flight regime we're kind of it's it comes down to a few different factors right like how capable is the bullet or the bullet designed to consistently clear that sound barrier okay. without variations in that drag um, or dragging consistencies, which is where we would start to experience uh, vertical dispersion. We're also interested in, uh, especially at those ranges, what the BC standard deviation is or the, again, the drag consistency from supersonic all the way into trans and subsonic, right? But I would say that you know, when a bullet starts to uh, become unstable or starts to uh, tumble at trans and subsonic range, it's because of dynamic stability, not gyroscopic stability. So, um, oh, so it's not necessarily that it stops spinning enough. No, it doesn't. It's, it's, well, more, it's, it's still it's, not spinning enough, but okay. it's not spinning enough for that specific design. Because that's where, like Chris yeah. was talking about, where it's really desi- design dependent. Some bullets okay. will need to be spun way faster to make it through transonic, unscathed, so to speak, versus others. So okay. the reason uh, being that you could essentially, uh, you know, fire a bullet through a faster than generic twist rate, like, uh, like for example, you know, on my 308 Winchester comp guns that I'll use for various sniper competitions. I'm running a one in nine on my uh, custom built applied ballistics weapons division bolt gun and uh, a one in eight uh, twist on my Sons of Liberty Mark 10. So I run those excessively fast twist rates because, or faster than generic twist rates because I know the individual bullet that I shoot being the uh, 175 OTM performs really quite well for a one in eight twist um, at trans and subsonic. Now, the caveat to that is, and what I'm really doing is I'm trying to reduce the bullet's limit cycle yaw 
you know and that's the bullet flying like this sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah so by reducing the bullet's limit cycle your i can kind of offset any dynamic instability issues through trans and subsonic i know that that bullet transitions through the uh, the sound barrier extremely well in general but i can maximize my weapon's maximum effective range by spinning that bullet excessively fast and reducing that limit cycle your through trans and subsonic if i'm not going to shoot that bullet into trans and sub why twist it faster all i've really done is increase my spin drift right um, oh, okay, up through yeah. into un, until you reach the transsonic like really all you are doing is increasing your spin drift yeah but um through the trans and subsonic you really there are benefits to be had there but the um the main point being uh by increasing that gyroscopic stability you're able to offset any uh, dynamic instability yeah. through trans and sub and just to quickly touch on so chris touched on um kind of like the practical side of how to like avoid those issues but the actual mechanics of what's going on is the the shock wave that the bullet is forming is more or less like catching up to and then starting to pass in front of the bullet oh, and yeah. that that transition literally a transition is where that instability occurs. It's it's oh, a okay. very I'd almost describe it as like a vulnerable vulnerable point for the bullet. And if things aren't perfect, it can throw so it out of whack and tumble. The shock wave was almost before keeping the bullet stable in some ways. Is that correct? Um, it's probably incorrect, but so but like as it as it transitions, it's just putting different. It's putting pressure it's, on the bullet differently. It, that's exactly right. Okay. Because it's as, consistent it, for a while, and then it yeah. starts to become inconsistent before it becomes consistent. And because the important again. thing to keep in mind is that again, the bullet's not flying perfectly straight like this. It's kind of doing this. Sure. And so when you've got the shock waves at various points on the bullet, and it tips just right. If you've got a shock wave over here, it can force it to tumble. Yeah. So that's that's kind of what can happen, and. Um, the reason why it's not just a definite line is because the air is actually accelerating around the bullet. So if the bullet, the, as the bullet dips just below subsonic, so to speak, the air is having to move out and around the projectile. And that process, even though the bullet isn't going faster than the speed of sound, as the air has to accelerate to get around the bullet, like going around an airfoil, it the air actually will reach Mach 1 and supersonic speeds. So you still get... Oh. You still get shockwave formation, even though the bullet itself isn't going faster than the speed okay. of sound, and that's why there's like a a band of velocities that are known as the the transonic range, where you kind of sure. have these issues at play. So even it's though not might, one definite velocity, you might okay. be at point nine just because of the how fast still at point nine the air is moving yeah, over exactly. the the. Okay. It's still huh, not quite out of cool. danger yet. <laughs> and then and then once it kind of goes back into full on, let's say below point eight or what you know, we'll yeah. to throw out a number. Once it goes back into subsonic. Then now you don't have all this action. Happening you don't have any the supersonic just... flow. You don't have any supersonic airflow around the projectile. It's okay. just all subsonic uh, flow at that point. No supersonic flow, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> does Does this mean we're bringing the supersonics back? Is that what you're trying to tell me, Jim? Always my favorite color scheme <laughs> in the NBA. Well, we'll see um, what happens. Man. Okay, I was going to ask you guys too. Is, uh, this This is like this is a stupid question, but it's one that. That like when I actually try to think about it and put a reason on it, I can't. But like in an ideal, wait, no, I don't. I don't even like. Why do we spin bullets? Okay, so why do they need to have a spin on them? You know so what I mean? that's it's pretty simple. So you know, like uh, you know, like the little Nerf footballs that have the fins on it, or like an arrow. I guess an yeah. arrow would be more applicable for this kind con- okay, uh, sure, yeah. podcast. What you at you what you have is the uh, the center of gravity mm-hmm. is in front of the center of pressure. 
and the center of pressure is like the the point where the drag of the projectile is really acting on the projectile. Okay. And that's a that's a stable uh, condition to be in. So that's that's why we put fins on things, right? To to help them fly straight because the center of pressure is back here. It's kind of like pulling on the bullet, whereas the or the projectile and the center of gravity is got its uh, all of its momentum trying to go down range, and that's mm-hmm. keeping it point forward. With a bullet, you have your center of gravity back here, and your center of pressure is up in the nose. Okay. And so where the the air is pushing on the bullet is in front of the center of gravity. And it naturally wants to flip around the other sure. way. Hmm. Okay. So, you when you spin it, it doesn't allow that to occur. Oh, so for the same to, reason you were talking about, like when you spin the bike wheel and you try to like yeah. change where you're holding it, it it's yeah, hard. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you need a very specific number of RPMs for a bullet at a given velocity to not want to overturn. Okay. And that's that overturning force of the center of pressure and center of gravity. And as long as those conditions are met, it'll stay point forward. And that's and why that's, if your barrel twist is too slow and you're shooting too heavy of a bullet, which is real long, yep. then it, it's going to end bullet up shaped holes in the side people. of your target. Yeah. Yep. Oh, <laughs> that that makes a ton of sense now. Yep. Huh. That's why the 200s don't shoot out of my 300 wisdom. <laughs> it's uh, it's funny you kind of say that because I, I come across some guys here and there and they're like, Oh, this explains a lot. I've been uh, scratching my head on these subsonic loads for, you know, the last six months, and they just keep keyholing sideways through the target. And I'm like, yeah. got to increase that spin, uh, that, that twist rate. So, <laughs> Interesting. You know. Mark, you should ask him, too, about high FOC arrows. Well, so are, you, are you in on the high FOC arrow? I don't know if you I, shoot it. I'm not big into archery. I'm not totally sure what there, you're referring to. There's a thing where people are talking about real heavy... You, t- you talk about I mean, you shoot bows it, it, a lot. I mean, I do. Eric is... Way more into the Ranch Ferry FOC land than this I is, am. Right? We'll make this but, like we'll make this like a two minute intermission. <laughs> but it did it did bring you know we talked we were kind of comparing arrows to bullets right and yeah. you're talking about you know the the weight I guess of of the bullet is more towards the rear. Yep. Where really probably on an arrow it's actually even with just a standard broadhead you have you know you got a hundred grains up front plus an insert you know yeah. and then now guys are putting you know. Weighted inserts, you know, brass insert, whatever. Basically uh, making outserts, it really heavy out. Making yep. it, making it really so your your front of center. So you essentially have like a percentage of that weight in front of the center of your arrow, and I think uh, ultimately, you know, you're getting um, or one of the benefits is better penetration. Yeah. So I wish we had Eric right now because he's <laughs> like you big FOC guy right big now. Big FOC guy. Yeah. So aerodynamically speaking, the so the veins on your arrow is where your center of pressure is. You know, the, the the drag on the veins is bringing your center of pressure back. The further that is behind the center of gravity, which the more weight you put in the front, the farther forward your center of gravity is. Keeping that distance as far apart as possible is what's making a more stable arrow. Mm-hmm. Where with the bullets, the opposite way, right? So you have your the further the longer of a bullet you make. So these super long, uh, high BC bullets we've got nowadays, you keep you're pushing that center of pressure further forward, but your center of gravity is further back. Oh, you're making it harder. It's to... harder and harder. Like the further so forward s- that center of pressure is, yeah, you got to spin it faster and faster. That's why the bigger, heavier, longer bullet that you shoot, or I should say the the longer and heavier bullet you shoot for a given caliber, you got to spin it faster because that center of pressure and center of gravity distance is greater. We need ballistics people to follow us around everywhere and answer <laughs> all of our questions because it seems like they can. Mark, I, I, I've asked them a, a bazillion. I don't know if you had. No, Jim, I'm glad there. you asked all these questions because honestly, like this stuff is yeah. so scientific. I 
actually didn't even know what questions I wanted to ask. <laughs> My only last one I was going to ask is, what caliber do you guys shoot a lot of and like shooting most of? Yeah, so I've been I've been mostly shooting ELR, to be honest. So um, I've got a 338 enabler, which is a cartridge we developed. And uh, I shoot 300 grain burger hybrids at uh, like 3,200 feet per second out of that thing. So it's a, you know, it's like a 26-ish pound rifle. And, uh, but it's, you know, stupid high performance. So, I, I mean, that gun, I, I rarely shoot it inside of a thousand yards and mostly it's, you know, a mile plus. So I shoot that a lot. And then, uh, that's probably my favorite rifle just cause it's, it's so accurate and such high performance that it really pads your ego when you're shooting it inside. It's like <laughs> you shoot at a thousand yards cause you're like, oh, I think it's a seven mile an hour wind. But the reality is it didn't matter if it was a seven mile an hour wind or a three mile an hour wind because all I had to do was hold left edge on the target and I still hit. Um, But yeah, so that's just my, what I've been shooting a lot at ELR. You plug Um, that one into the machine a lot then. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah, his hit percentage is just... Get that affirmation. Oh yeah, for sure. Super high age. It's like uh, likes on Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and then um, I'm... Starting to shoot the 375s a little bit more again, which is a even more hardcore ELR round. It's not quite as fun as the 338, just because there's a little bit more recoil. Uh, 338 is actually a little bit cheaper to shoot, which is it's still super expensive That's to shoot. Something. But yeah, <laughs> um, but I've been shooting a little six by 47 Lapua yeah. quite a bit lately, and oh, I'm cool. finding that extremely fun. So um, I might start shooting some PRS matches and stuff like that cool. pretty soon, just because it's a good time. Right on. Chris, I guess, how about you? I guess, unlike Mitch, I don't really, uh, you know, I've spent a bit of time behind 50 cows and 375s <laughs> and whatnot, and I don't really take pleasure in being hit by a bus um, <laughs> every time I pull the trigger. Yep. So, you know, probably the largest I like to go up to when I can choose is uh, the 300 Norma Mag. Yep. That is just a great cartridge. There's some really great bullets out there, like the, uh, the 215 and the 230 hybrids are just... Um, and that thing hammers, you know, and I like to say that it's, uh, it's more bark than bite. It's still very, very manageable. And that thing's just absolutely a pleasure to shoot. And, you know, similar, uh, to the free free eight enabler, it's, um, you know, kind of boosts your ego a little bit inside a thousand with the efficiency of the bullet and, um, the wind deflection that you're not going to see. I mean, it's not quite as good in terms of, uh, quality of ballistic merits compared to the, the free free eight enabler or whatever, but at the same time, it's still, uh, it's still nice to shoot. And then aside from that, you know, if I, um, don't want to get rocked around at all, I don't want to <laughs> rock my world. Um, I just go back to the 308 Winchester because the old 308 Winchester is just good fun. I've spent many years behind it and, you know, sometimes you don't even necessarily need a uh, ballistic solver to calc the, um, the closer... Uh, the closer targets, you can just use the force and call it, you know, one point nine mil and seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you know, you, you sometimes know. it's sometimes it's nice to go back to a cartridge, you know, one that has such history with our founding fathers. You know, I mean, it fought <laughs> it fought some of the oldest wars. You can find them in museums. Yeah, yeah. You got to use a ramrod. You know, three hundred eight. I didn't tell you this, Jim, <laughs> but uh, Mucky's got me back on the three hundred eight. Oh, come on. 
What do you think I'm I, taking? I on actually this? have no issue with the 308 because I have my Browning DLRs <laughs> in 308. So <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we do we do like to get around with the 308 shooters though. That you know it's all antiquated now because oh, the yeah. six five Creedmoor is the prom king. Yeah, yeah right. now so, the six Creed. So we, that's we right. take the PD, we take the mobile lab to these matches and everyone's shooting a six millimeter of some variant. You know, six Dasher, six BRA, six BR, six Creed, but everyone's shooting six millimeters these days. Yeah. It it seems that way. The, uh, we're, we're trying to make the thirty out six great again. We'll do. Oh, it. there we're, we go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We get it back. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna see if we could do it. But hey, then and then Ryan's kind of got us on the seven millimeter kick. So who knows? Who knows? Those are both uphill battles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you heard it here. The, the nev- <laughs> Our nev- hopes have been dashed. Yeah, the, the, they've been dashered, Jim. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Sure. But uh, that one, the the enabler, I think that's a very fitting name to be as as into long range shooting and the rifles that you guys are describing. Uh, you 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 need an enabler in your life. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun, man. You, like I said, three hundred grain bullets are in the case of the the three seventy five. We're shooting like four hundred seven grain bullets. It's like one hundred thirty grains of powder, and uh, wow, it's a good time. Yeah. Sounds like it. <laughs> you definitely do some good work with that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like I said, it's just a blast to shoot because you can, I mean, it's just so easy to hit stuff at, you know, really, really far distances. Yeah. But right on. Yeah. Well, I love cool. it. Guys, I, Amazing. this has been absolutely, I actually can't believe, like, how much we packed into this amount of time. Super cool. Yeah, we actually got into more detail on a lot of stuff than we have in other podcasts I think there'll be some people listening to it a couple times to try to oh yeah back that sift up. through. Please but. do, and then like uh, for reference for those listening out there who just like get super curious, you know, they've got more questions, want to learn more, and stuff like that. What's where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, really, they should uh, if they go on our Applied Ballistics website to our Applied Ballistics store or any of our other dealers. Um, if they really want to learn more, we've got a number of books. Um, the Applied Ballistics series of books. We've got Applied Ballistics for Long Range Shooting. Um, and a bunch of other ones that really go into detail. I say they go into detail, but they're worded in a way that really almost everyone can understand it. Like, if you take the time to read it, you might read it a couple times, but you can grasp it. Um, Brian did a really good job writing those books in uh, layman's terms, as he likes to put it. And so um, some of the stuff we talked about, if you're having a hard time visualizing it, you know, there's diagrams um, and stuff in the book to really help you grasp what's being said. So I really recommend people get those books and read them if they want to either better understand what we talked about today or get into even more stuff. Um, any of the applied ballistics books are, are the, are the way to go. Right on. I would awesome. also say, uh, you know, there's applied ballistics training division. Yep. That's, yeah. that's, so your, that's really yeah. the, the link that we established to provide the, um, you know, the practical takeaways for what we just really discussed to the end user and just facilitating placing more hits on target so mm-hmm. that's um more that might be uh you know more preferred for some shooters where they're not necessarily looking to get really deep into the science but more so just establish well chris how do i hit my target just tell sure. me what's the dial <laughs> yeah right yeah. chris chris that's offers training cool. on all the applied ballistic stuff so that's cool and how do they find you guys in the mobile uh trailer thing the we've got a lab. yeah we've got a schedule up on our website uh things have been gotten really shaken up with 2020 and that's fair. covid and uh we've we're pretty sure we've got a couple more events that have been canceled or are going to be canceled so things are continually changing but yeah on the applied ballistics website we've got we've tr- we're trying to keep a schedule up to date with where we're going 
But, you know, if there's any match directors or anybody holding events, you know, most, mostly we've been going to shooting events, but um, that doesn't necessarily reach hunters as much. Mm-hmm. So if there's anybody listening that um, has more hunting-related events that they think they'll have a decent turnout of long-range hunters, we're open to um, hearing about them and possibly going to those events. So if anybody knows of events that they would like to get data like this done, um, reach out to uh, marketing at appliedballisticsllc.com and you know just reach out and say hey we've got this event or i know of this event and you know we'll talk to them and if it's a good fit we might be able to make something work but other than that just pay attention to the the schedule on our website and um see if there's something nearby that's cool Very awesome cool. yeah thank you guys a ton really truly fascinating it. yeah thanks, thanks for having us on. listening as usual as well and uh yeah we'll catch everybody next time so thank bye. you bye thank you All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.